Thank you, Chris. All right, we are continuing in our series in the book of Daniel this morning. We are up to Daniel chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to uh, open up and follow along, uh, read along there. It'll also be, the passage will also be up on the screen here, or you can follow along on your device. And if you are physically able to stand, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? Okay, Daniel 4, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, that they could not make no but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. 
Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, 
and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a big text. This is a heavy text. This is a hard passage, and yet it is also, it reveals um, such a sweet promise. So Lord, I pray that this morning as as we listen, as, as, we, as we sit here in this discomfort, Father, that you would minister to us, that you would apply the good news of your grace, of your mercy in its fullest extent to our hearts. Lord, I pray that any obstacles in our, in our minds, in our hearts right now, that you would remove. And Lord, I pray that you would be exalted. Would you give us eyes to see you? Hearts that trust you. Would your Holy Spirit be powerfully at work in our midst? And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we all likely remember hearing the news last fall that Queen Elizabeth II had passed. She lived an extraordinary life of faithful service as Britain's longest reigning monarch, 70 years. She was almost the, the longest monarch of all time by a couple of years. And it was a role that uh, she held with, with dignity, with humility, and with a sincere care for others, which explains why she was beloved around the world by, uh, in her life as well as in her death. More than a quarter million people waited in line for hours uh, in order to pass through Westminster Hall and see her for 15, 20 seconds lying in state and pay their respects. And it's estimated over a million people attended her, uh, the, the public funeral procession. And of course, millions upon millions tuned in around the world. And uh, I got a chance to watch a little bit of it. And one moment from that day particularly touched me. It came at the conclusion of the state funeral at St. George's Chapel. And before the queen's coffin was lowered down into the, the royal vault, the symbols of sovereignty were removed from the coffin. If you got to see pictures of it, you remember that the scepter and the orb and the crown and all of that were fixed on top of the coffin. These were the, the symbols of her, uh, her, her sovereignty, right? And so one by one, each one of those was removed and then placed on the altar. And then the, the final, after the final parting words from the presiding minister were given, the coffin was lowered down slowly into the vault. And while that was happening, uh, a bagpipe player, a piper, um, you know, I don't listen to a lot of bagpipe, but uh, 
this moment was particularly moving. This, uh, this piper played a final lament, slowly walking down the adjacent hallway and out into the courtyard. And if you got to see that, you know how, how this final song was just a, a moving farewell to her, this person who's been a fixture probably, you know, of, uh, for most of our lives, reigning for 70 years. But it was also a poignant depiction that her time in that role had come to an end and that she had departed and gone to glory. That the, the sovereign monarch of the, the UK had gone to be with her sovereign God. Well, we are in a series in the book of Daniel, and as we're going through this series, we're exploring how when we see God more clearly, when we see him for who he really is, when we see him for what he is like, when we see what he has done and how he works in this world, that that cultivates in us a, a resiliency, a deep faith in him, and that equips us to live in this world in the midst of challenges and uh, confusing uh, times. And so far in this series, we've looked at the faithfulness of God. We've seen the wisdom of God to reveal mysteries. We've looked at the unlimited greatness of God in, in comparison to the limited greatness of mankind. And last week, we looked at the, the worthiness of God. Jay did a really fantastic job leading us through that. And this week, in Daniel 4, we see another attribute of God, and that is the sovereignty of God. We see here that God is sovereign, that he rules and reigns over all that he has made and for eternity and imperfection. And we see two aspects of God's sovereignty in this passage this morning. We see his sovereign rule and his sovereign work. So we're going to start by reflecting on his sovereign rule, more or less, in the, the first half of this chapter. And this begins with the alarm that Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream, right? The guy is, I don't know, he, he uh, needs some melatonin or something. He's having a hard time with these dreams. Uh, and this one seems even more distressing <clears throat> than the first one, right? Which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So he summons his council of experts again, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, uh, the masters of esoteric knowledge, if you remember. And he asks them to provide an explanation. And this time he's generous enough at least to, explain, to, to share the dream with them. You remember a couple of weeks ago, he asked them to tell him what the dream was, and they all, you know, much to their chagrin, right? Uh, yet even with that information, when he tells them the dream, they can't make sense of it. They don't know what to do with this. And so Daniel, who's now chief over these wise men, is brought in. And Nebuchadnezzar recounts the dream to him, and we're told that it's this. He saw this massive tree on earth. It was huge. It was great. It was strong. Its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible all the way to the ends of the earth. And the tree was also healthy and productive. It had beautiful leaves. It had abundant fruit and those were used to, to nourish and provide for all those around it. The beasts and the birds and the living things all found shelter and nourishment under this. But then something horrific happened. 
an angel came down in the stream, an angel came from heaven, and proclaimed that the tree was to be cut down. Its branches lopped off, its leaves stripped, its fruit scattered. The stump was to be left but bound by metal and to be left out in the field, in the grass, among the beasts where the dew would settle on it. And it says, and his mind would be changed. Now Nebuchadnezzar recounts this dream and he implores Daniel to tell him the meaning. What is to, to make sense of this? Uh, in which, to which Daniel reluctantly responds that he wishes this dream was about Nebuchadnezzar's enemies, right? But alas, it's about him. He says, you, O king, have been the one to grow strong. Your dominion reaches to the ends of the earth and you are to be chopped down for a time in order to learn something. And the reason that this is happening is that the Lord has a lesson to teach him. And the lesson is simply this, that God is the one who rules, not him. God is the one who rules, not him. Four times in the chapter, the reason is given. You may have caught it as we were going through this, either in the dream or in the explanation, whatever. He says, that you may know, that the living may know until you know, that you may know over and over and over again. He says that you may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know beyond the shadow of a doubt in the deepest part of his being that God rules, that God is most high. He's saying you may think yourself to be the most powerful man on earth. All people may bow at your command and follow your decrees. You may have untold wealth. You may be seen from far and wide as untouchable, as invincible, as all, the all-powerful king of Babylon. But you are only there at God's command. It is God that rules over the earth, not any man. It is God who brought all creation into existence and ordered it the way that he desired. It is God who is sovereign over all that he has made. It is God who is limitless in power. It is God who establishes and deposes rulers. It is God who determines the rise and the fall of nations. And it is by God's hand that you are where you are. The most high rules overall. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar had a very different view of things, right? That wasn't his, his image of himself. That wasn't his image of God. And we get a glimpse into his own uh, perspective on himself in the, in the back half of the chapter, right? We see that he's, he's strolling around the top of the palace. And he says to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now, Babylon was, by all accounts, an impressive city. It was spectacular. And during his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had constructed two sets of, fortif uh, of fortifying walls, as if one set of giant walls that are like 24 feet thick 
as if one set of that is not enough, two sets of walls, right? He had constructed multiple palaces and temples. He had a, constructed a robust water system. And he had even made the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which were uh, supposedly a gift to his wife, to remind his wife of her home. And became known, of course, as one of the seven wonders of the world. Like, that's that's pretty impressive gift for, uh, for your wife. It was a tremendous accomplishment. And the problem was that all of that had gone to his head. And you see it in how he's talking to himself. He says, look at what I have built by my power for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar had a heart that was filled with pride. And God wanted to show him that it was not by his own power or his might or for his majesty that Nebuchadnezzar had done this, but rather it was only by the allowance of the sovereign God. And this is a vitally important lesson, not just for Nebuchadnezzar, but for all of us to learn. Because the reality is that pride is the universal struggle of humanity. D.H. Tongue gives this definition. He says, rebellious pride, which refuses to depend on God and be subject to him, but attributes to self the honor due to him, figures as the very root and essence of sin. It is turning away from dependence on God and relying on yourself. It's taking the honor that is due to God and giving it to yourself. It is self-reliance. It's self-glorying. It's self-aggrandizing. It's a rejection of God as God and a replacement of self as God. In other words, pride is the opposition to the sovereignty of God and the exaltation of the self, which is why Augustine described it like this. He said, pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. Was that not the fundamental motivation for Adam and Eve in the garden? The desire to be like God. The elevation of their own judgment over what God had told them. The rejection of their creator. It's not merely the vice of dictators or billionaires or diagnosed narcissists, right? Pride is the sinful condition that's lurking in every human heart because it's the root motivation beneath every kind of sin. You think about the variety of ways in which pride can manifest in our hearts. You know, you can have pride because of your success. You're on top of the world. You have all of the things, right? You start, you've got, you've got one too many mirrors in your house, right? Because you like the look of what you see when you walk by. But you can also be prideful in the absence or even rejection of success or status. You know, think about the kind of comical example of 
indie music and, and films, you know, when you, when you really like something because it's obscure, because no one else knows about it, right? You're on the inside, and then when, the, when it gets popular, right, oh, they're dead to you. They've gone mainstream. That's a little bit of pride, right? We can have pride because of our wealth. We become puffed up because of all the things we have, but we can also have pride in our destitution, being unwilling to accept help. No, I'm good. No, I'm good. I know I got this. I'm okay. We can have pride in our religious devotion. We can have pride in our licentiousness and sin and rebellion. It is, it is amazing, the limitlessness of our creativity with pride. I came across a, a story online about a man who was trying to minister to someone who was in a tough place. And he wrote this. He said, I recently took a 45-minute drive in an old beat-up van with a guy I barely know. Along the way, we ended up talking about Jesus and whether this man would give his life to Christ. And his response to me laid out humanity's resistance to the gospel with striking clarity. He said, my biggest problem is pride. I can't humble myself. And you want to know the reason I can't give up my pride? He leaned up onto the steering wheel and paused for effect because it's brought me so far. The guy said, I couldn't believe my ears. I knew that his pride had brought nothing but great pain. It was all he held on to while growing up in gangs, while his father died of a drug overdose and his mother was in the mafia. I knew that his self-made man beat his wife regularly, that he was unemployed, that he'd just gotten out of prison. And in fact, I found out a week later that he was on his way back into prison. And in a separate conversation, his wife told me that his young daughters are terrified of him, that he's an alcoholic, that he was planning on, that she was planning on leaving him. She even told me that the old van he was driving in was going to be repossessed in a week. Despite all of our differences, I couldn't help but notice that in some ways, this guy and I are similar. I struggle to lay down my pride because it's brought me so far, or so I think. What's it really brought both him and me, and you no doubt, is pain, isolation, and ruined relationships. This man realized that for all the stark differences in their lives, in the circumstances that they faced, they had this in common. They both struggled to lay down their pride. And there's a warning for us to heed here. We must beware the danger of pride. We must take pains to see it for what it is, self-delusion and self-destruction. Pride disconnects us from reality and from ultimate reality. It puts us in the place where only the sovereign God can be. But to whom do we turn when something is beyond our control? When we fail again and again, and this time we can't recover. When we're confronted by our own powerlessness in a situation. You know, as the saying goes, it's not the fall that kills you, it's that sudden stop at the end. Living in the self-delusion of pride 
is akin to a free fall at terminal velocity. And it may seem fine for a while, but at some point, you hit reality. So we need to beware the danger of pride. But the lesson of God's sovereign rule presents not only a warning, it also gives us a gift. And that is the gift of knowing that God is in control and you don't have to be. Have you ever had a more liberating thought than that, right? Consider all of the things that you worry over, you stress over, the the endless efforts of your labor, how diligently you, you strive to keep everything under control. You're trying so hard to be everything you're supposed to be, to do everything you're supposed to do, to hold everything together. It's exhausting, not to mention impossible. The reality is that we can't do it. We can't be God. But the good news is that we don't have to be, thankfully. You know, have you ever had a job to do that just felt like a grind? Some of you are saying, yes, that's every day for me. You know, maybe it's a job, it's painful and, and difficult, and there were seemingly new variables like every day that you had to account for. Uh, and, and you just felt like this rubber band just stretched out to its max. And then one day, that responsibility stops, mercifully. The project ends, or your boss assigns that to someone else. And what do you do? You, take this, you have this deep sigh of relief, and you just say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That is over. Knowing the sovereign rule of God is the cosmic equivalent of that. God and God alone is sovereign. He is in control over all things. And when we know, when we know that like he wants us to, when we, when we repent of our pride and we turn to him and we let that truth settle down into the deepest parts of our beings, we can exhale this deep sigh of relief because now we can depend on him and not on ourselves. We can trust in him and not our own abilities. And the reaction is peace. So we see God's sovereign rule here in this passage. The second aspect of God's sovereignty here is God's sovereign work. God's sovereign work. And perhaps you caught this when we we read the text the first time, but the story is actually told as a testimony. The chapter opens as Nebuchadnezzar is making a proclamation to all peoples and nations and languages, similar to the proclamation he made in the previous chapter where he was declaring that everyone needed to come and bow down and worship this image that he had set up. If they didn't, it was not going to go well for them, right? Yet here, it is the opposite. He's declaring how great God is and sharing the marvelous things that God has done. You see, a radical change in Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 3 to 4. This entire story is a testimony of the work of God in his life. And that testimony includes not just the lesson that God was teaching him, that God rules sovereignly over all, but how God taught him that lesson. And we see here the methods that he used. First, God disrupts him from his comforts. In verse 4, just before the dream came to him, he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. And then later in the chapter, he's walking 
along the rooftop of his palace, gazing at all his accomplishments. And into both these times of ease and comfort, God breaks in and disrupts his spiritual lethargy. And the effect is, is panic, right? It's distress. He's alarmed. So God disrupts him from his comfort. Second, we see he reveals truth to him. Look at all the remarkable gifts of God's revelation. He gives him a dream with a warning about the future. That was a gift. He, he gives him a man capable of making sense of the dream. That was a gift. And he gave Daniel the understanding of the dream. That was a gift. Not one of those was owed to him. Not one of them was deserved. Especially not to a foreign king that had raided Jerusalem, sacked the town, leveled the temple, carted God's people off into exile. But God graciously revealed truth to a tyrannical ruler. Third, we see God provides the opportunity to repent. Daniel urged Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his prideful ways. He says, break off from your sins, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There was no guarantee that the judgment would be spared, but at least the possibility was extended from the prophet of God. And even after that, God waited 12 months before delivering the sentence, which is a pretty remarkable amount of patience. Can you imagine telling your child, your young child, they need to complete some assignment or chore in the house, and if they don't, there's a consequence, right? And you remind them every day for a year to do that. You give them a year. I mean, that is a really long runway. I feel frustrated after just 15 minutes of asking my kids to go brush their teeth. God gave him a year. So God provides a tremendous opportunity to repent. And then... God strips him of every source of pride when he doesn't respond. He strips the kingdom from him. He drives him out among the wild animals where he eats grass like a beast because he has lost his mind. He takes away his authority. He takes away his comforts. He takes away his relationships. He takes away his dignity. He takes away his sanity. He tore him down. He took his life apart piece by piece. And he did it to then restore him. After a season, this turning point comes where he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven and reason returned to me. He finally looked to God and God restored him. What on earth is God's purpose behind all of that? God disrupted, he revealed, he was patient, he tore him down, he did all of that to change his heart. God allowed severe calamities as a severe mercy in order to effect a deep change in his soul. God took a man who was prideful and he crushed him. He brought him low so that in his desperation, in his humility, he would finally see God. God's aim wasn't humiliation or vindictiveness or spite. God's aim in all of that was redemption. He was working to set Nebuchadnezzar free from the prison of pride. 
to loose the shackles of his change, to turn his heart to depend on God, to turn his eyes to the heavens. And to accomplish that, he had to bring him low in order to raise him up renewed. Do you know that God is sovereignly working in your life in just the same way? He kindly disrupts us from our complacency, right? In order to awaken us to himself. He graciously reveals the truth to us to help us see. To see the truth of who we are, our brokenness and our need for help. The truth that we think we're living in this palace and it's actually a prison. And to see the truth of who he is, the sovereign God who cares for us and who wants to set us free. And he generously gives us opportunities to respond to him, to receive that gift of freedom. And then mercifully, he applies pressure to help us see our need for him. You know, Tim Keller, um, the former pastor in New York City, was fond of using the illustration of the vending machine, uh, <clears throat> where the, you, know, you put the quarter in the vending machine and then out comes a drink, right? But sometimes the, the quarter goes in and it gets stuck. And what, what do you do? You have to kind of shake it a little bit to get the thing to go down, and then if it doesn't, you just you have to pound it. You just you start to kick it, right? Whatever it takes to dislodge that quarter so that it it drops, and then out comes the drink. And of course, I don't know if this works anymore because <coughs> Apple Pay and smartphones and stuff like that. It, I guess you smack your smartphone against the vending machine. Vending machine here. So, but anyways, Keller used to say sometimes we hear the gospel and maybe we even receive it, but it hasn't really settled down into the depths of our hearts. We haven't really been changed by it yet. And so what does God do? He pounds on us until it makes its way down. You know, afflictions come to us in all kinds of varieties. And of course, God allows them for a myriad of reasons. But not one of them is outside of his sovereign control and his sovereign work, which is the redemption and the renewal of your souls. He is at work in every circumstance, in every challenge, in every joy and struggle, in every success, in every difficulty. His goal in all of that is for us to live to more, to more fully lift our eyes to heaven and to see him, to trust him, to know him, to depend on him. The God of the universe is sovereignly working to spread his glory through the redemption and the renewal of his creation, which should give us extraordinary hope, right? It is both terrifying and joyful news that he is able to humble those who walk in pride. God can change anyone. There is no one beyond the grace and mercy of God. So for any who are willing to surrender their pride and to look to him in faith, he stands ready to forgive, to heal, and to restore and transform. And that should give us hope in the age in which we live. Hope for ourselves. Hope for our neighbors. And we see that redeeming work in a, in a dream here, but think of how much more fully we see it in Christ. 
the Son of God who, who took on flesh and came down from heaven, who disrupts us from our complacency and, and reveals the truth of the gospel to us, who humbled himself so that we could be lifted up, who suffered willingly in our place so that we could be forgiven, who died so that we might live. So the sovereign work of God gives us this extraordinary hope, but it also brings tremendous comfort. Because in the face of our afflictions, even when it's difficult to see and hard to understand, we can know that God is working to refine us, to shape us, to transform us, to make us into instruments for his use in the lives of others. There's no pain wasted, no anxious struggle, no chronic illness, no family estrangement. Not a single hardship is wasted in the hands of our Redeemer. And like Nebuchadnezzar, he is giving you a testimony to share with the world. Your faithful, wise, great, worthy God is sovereignly working in your life. And so I pray that you would take heart this week as you lift your eyes. Each week, we come to the Lord's table. This is our way to remember Christ's sacrifice.